Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. What we're talking about today really is important. It's not just... Um, it's not just an emotional thing. It's not just something that you know, ladies should pay attention to because us guys, we got it all together. And, this and, this. and we're going to talk about that. But I really want us to pay attention because I believe that God has not called us to suffer, suffer or struggle alone. He's called us into community. And, and I want to say family. And when I say that, I know some of your reaction is, well, yeah, but, you know, I don't really feel like I have family here at Harvest, which is understandable in some ways, but it's not what we want to accept. So uh, Pastor Dave asked me if I could uh, give a sermon uh, this week, and uh, he said I had a choice. I could either go to First Timothy chapter 5 or pick something on my own. So I said, well, if I'm going to do something this week, I want to make sure I do at least a series, a short series, a two-part series. So you're only going to get one side of it today, and then next week we're going to talk about the side where we actually walk with people. Because ultimately, in the end, our hope is, as our church, if you would have been at the budget meeting, is bringing something called Stefan Ministries into the church. And Stefan Ministry is a caring ministry for people who are suffering and struggling, and they need someone there, not just for an event, but for a year or more, week by week, walking with them through their pain and, and their struggles. And that's a lot, and it, it requires a lot, but this is our hope and desire. And so a lot of this comes from that, and I also have to admit that some of the things that I'm going to say today came from Pastor Dave as well. So it's like his, uh, his ghost is on my shoulder helping me lead through this because it's something that he also has a heart for because he sees a lot more of this than I do because more people go to him for counseling than me, which is okay. He's better at it. That's what you should do, right? You go to the better. Uh, uh, we, we, have a, uh, we laugh about it a little bit. He's really good at counseling, and I'm good at follow-up. We should work together. So we're trying to figure out something, how we can work on that as well. So I want you to know this sermon is not like, if you're sitting there going, man, he's talking about me. Um, well, I might be. But it's not just you. There's a lot of people here. Okay, fair enough? All right, amen, let's go. So why do people suffer in silence? I, I made a wonderful PowerPoint uh, yesterday. I was proud of myself that I actually made a PowerPoint and uh, then I sent the wrong thing. So I don't have a PowerPoint <laughs> for you. <laughs> I sent the Word document. Ryan's going like, uh, it's a Word document. No, no, it's not a Word document. It's a PowerPoint. I promise you, I made it. And, uh, so, and the worst part is I brought my computer today, uh, but I left it at the office as I, as I got here. So you know, it's all against me. But there's, let me put it this way, just to get us started. Is this. I think there are seven reasons and probably more as to why people suffer or struggle in silence. They're not in any specific order, but the first one I picked was pride. A lot of people struggle or suffer in silence because pride. It's kind of that idea, you know what, I can do this myself. And it's not just a guy thing, but there are women who are the same way. I can handle this struggle by myself. I, I can get through this. I can do this. And, and sometimes uh, we think to ourselves, you know what, I don't want to let people see me as weak. Or, better yet, I don't want to be the needy person in the room. You know, the person, every time you get to small group or you get to church and uh, you, you see them coming and you think, oh man, there's that needy person. I don't want to be that person. And I'm just going to kind of get into a conversation with somebody else before Mr. or Mrs. Needy comes over to me and starts giving me all their needs. I can't do that. I don't want to be that person. And there's a sort of pride that rises up in us and says, I can do this alone. 
Um, Pastor Dave gave me this little quote from Confucius. It says, real men suck it up. Confucius says when life gives you lemons, suck it up and don't show your sour face. That's the kind of idea. You know, I'm going to be proud. I can do this. And the funny thing is it gets kind of spiritualized because what it becomes is this. It's, it's not just me. It's just me and God. I just need God. If I have God, God and me alone can get me through this. And so I'm just going to depend on God. I don't need other people, which is an absolute lie. Because God has given us a family to help us walk through it. And so this pseudo-spirituality, which we think is really honorable, just me and God are going to go through this together, really is a lie. And we suffer because of our pride. Another one is, I don't deserve help, or I deserve this because of my failure. In other words, you've blown it. And you know it. And because you've blown it, because you've made this mistake, whether it's an addiction or a difficulty or a struggle that you have, and it's because you've done something wrong, we think to ourselves, which might be another form of pride, is, hey, you know what, I blew it. Why should anyone help me? I mean, in some ways as a parent, that's what we try to teach our children, right? We try to teach them to take responsibility for the things that they do wrong and then to figure it out themselves because we want them to grow up. And so we take that into our spiritual lives in the midst of our struggling with sin or some pain and we say, you know what? Listen, I don't deserve help. I made a mistake. I've got to make it right. Another reason is because people feel that they've been betrayed. Has anyone here ever been betrayed by a friend after you told them something really cool or something painful? Just me and Andrea? We're the only ones who've said... We don't have some... We have some bad friends, girl. I remember once, I think I was like about eight years old, and I might have told this before, but this one lady was over at our parents' house, my parents' house, and uh, she says, well, who do you like? And I said, I'm not going to tell anybody. Do you remember this when I told you this before? And I told her who I liked, and I promise you, one second later, she then told the whole room. I was... I, I, think I, I don't know if she's alive today, but I'm still bitter. <laughs> it was like 45 years ago, man. Let it go. But isn't that true? You, you, you poured out your heart to people, and then they went and told other people. And so a lot of us hide, suffer, struggle in silence because we don't want to go through that again. I don't want to pour out my heart and have somebody tell somebody else. I'm telling you, I don't want the whole world to know. Another reason is because I'm protecting someone else. And I find this is really true in cases of, uh, of abuse. A lot of times people suffer in silence because they're protecting someone else. Whether it's verbal, physical, or sexual abuse, they're trying to protect someone else, which sounds nice because it's probably a family member. And sometimes even, and this has happened, when somebody comes forward and says, so-and-so is abusing me, and it's a grandfather or a father, people go, no, not him. And so we suffer in silence because we're protecting someone. Another reason is because we have no one to turn to because we didn't develop any friendships or we don't think that we have any friends. We suffer in silence because we say, hey, you know what, can I really tell this to someone and then they're going to actually walk with me? Man, I don't know if there's anyone here who would actually do that with me. So I'm going to suffer in silence. I'm going to struggle with my sin because I don't have any friends. Another one is I'm ashamed. Man, if I told somebody I struggle with this, people would look at me like, wow, you struggle, man. That's disappointing, or that's discouraging, or that's disgusting. How many of you are Harry Potter fans? Any Harry Potter fans? Does anyone know what, um, who Professor Slughorn is? Do you remember who he is? He's, he's really crucial to the end. Does anyone want to read this? I'm going to ruin the whole story for you. <laughs> so has anyone here not read it yet and wants to? Well, you should have read it anyway. Too bad. 
in book number six, because there's seven of them, Professor Slughorn kind of makes a foggy memory because he's ashamed of what he told Lord Voldemort, who's the bad guy, on how to make horcruxes, which is where he hides his spirit after he kills people. And he's ashamed, and his words, it shocked me, because it's really weird how you're doing a sermon sometimes, and God uses, brings this stuff in. But he, he uses the words, I'm ashamed of what I've done, because he realizes, because of him, this guy is made powerful. He's ashamed of that. Dude, if you would have taken care of this in the beginning, we wouldn't be in such a bad spot. So we hide because we're ashamed, but that doesn't make sense because if we have a family, we should be able to come and share what is ever on our hearts. Now, there are going to be some things that people are doing and we're going to shake our head and go, wow, I can't believe that. But our response is not, wow, I can't believe that, but I'm going to walk with you. And then a fourth one is, and this is the one that I'm going to focus on today because I think this is the story of Job in some ways. It's this, I'm afraid I'm going to be judged. How many of us here have not said anything because we're afraid of being judged? Man, if I tell you this, everyone's going to go, dude, that is awful. Shame on you. And you call yourself a Christian? How can you do that? So I'm not going to say anything because why would I want to be? I'm suffering. Why would I want to add to all of that the fact that I've just been judged, which is the thing that we don't want to have at church, which is what next week is going to be about. But let's look at the life of Job. Now, I don't know how much you guys know about Job. Maybe a lot, but I'm going to go through this really quick. But the context is quite simply that Job is a righteous man. He's doing everything that God wants him to do. He's worshiping, he's worshiping, and he's worshiping, and God has prospered him. And one day uh, in heaven, God turns to Satan and goes, check out Job. That man has got it all together. He loves me, he worships me. And it's, like, it's kind of like a parent, which a lot of you are proud of your kids, right? Just go to Facebook. I can tell you who's proud of their parents basketball games, gymnastic meets. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Why not be proud of our kids, right? God is proud of Job, his child, and he's bragging on him. And Satan goes, hey, hey, you know what, God? That's really neat, but that's because your hand of favor is in his life. Why don't we take that away and let's see what Job does? And God says, okay, that's fine, because I think he's going to do really well. And sure enough, Satan comes, destroys all of his possessions, takes away his 10 kids, and at the end of it, Job says, I'm going to worship God. Second time comes around, God says, listen, Satan, see that? I told you, I'm bragging on him for a reason. This man hangs in there. Satan goes, yeah, but let me mess with him a little bit more, and I'll show you that he doesn't. What happens? Once again, Satan gets his way, and Job still praises God, even after his wife said, curse God and die. Job hangs in there. And God, in a sense here, is bragging correctly because Job has done what God said he would. But the reason why... Job suffered was because he did what was right in God's eyes. That's the crazy thing, right? But because of that, we then come into chapter 3, which is what we're going to see, because Job has these friends, and these three friends come from all different places, and they're going to sit down, and they're going to comfort him. So for seven days, they sit in absolute silence. Because they're just there and they're mourning his loss. He's lost his kids, he's lost his possessions, he's lost his health. He looks horrible. Everything is going wrong. And so these seven friends just sit there and they're sitting with him. And then in chapter 3, this is how it starts out. Job chapter 3, some of these verses, this is what he says. He pours out his heart, okay? Still in worship. Because the funny thing is that we don't understand is you can worship God and yet still be real. And Job is real. He says this. Cursed be the day of my birth and cursed be the night when I was conceived 
Curse it for its failure to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to all of this trouble. Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did my mother let me live? I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come to be. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Instead, only trouble comes. Have you ever felt like that? Man, life is difficult. I really don't want to be here anymore. The easy way would be, God, just take it all. And I can remember in the first church that I was at, this one girl made a very interesting thing, a very interesting statement about suicide. Something called spiritual suicide. Spiritual suicide is the thing where we say, God, I can't take my own life, but if you just killed me, it'd be all over, and I can get out of this pain. It's kind of what Job is feeling, because he's lost everything. I can't, as I've shared with you before, imagine what it would be like to lose only one of my children. To think to lose five of them at one shot, and to lose everything that I own, which isn't necessarily much, so that's not too bad, but to lose them and not question God and ask why. Does it make sense? So you can worship God and you can still suffer and be honest and say, God, this is the place that I'm in, which is what Job is doing. He's saying, this is a bad spot. I really want to die. I really wish I hadn't even been born because then none of this would have ever happened. That would be a much easier way. Now, Job has not stopped worshiping God All he's doing is pouring out his heart. It's like he would come here to harvest and he'd sit up here in front where Ray is sitting and Ray starts going, man, things are going bad. I'm about to lose everything. Why was I born? And what would our response be? Well, let's see what the interesting response of Job's friends are because it's really surprising. In Job chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, the beginning of chapter 4, Eliphaz, his first friend, goes, Job, you have been a man of God. You've encouraged people. You've gotten alongside of people. You've loved on them. It's just been wonderful. Now, when trouble strikes, you faint and are broken. Does your reverence for God give you no confidence? Shouldn't you believe that God will care for those who are upright? Stop and think. Does the innocent person perish? When has the upright person been destroyed? My experience shows those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. What did he just say? He said, Job, you're a really good guy, man. I have watched you over the years. You've worshipped God. You've encouraged people. That's been really cool. But now a little trouble comes into your life and you're moaning and groaning about how bad you have it? What's wrong with you? Don't you realize, dude, you've sinned. You did something wrong. You know, you you planted a seed of evil and now it's taken root and you're moaning and groaning and complaining about this. And here in what chapter 5, what do you see? Some it this way, he says this. Bad things happen to bad people, so go and present yourself and your case before God. In other words, repent. This is why people suffer and struggle in silence because our friends hear us pour out our hearts and they say, well, you did something wrong then. You must have done something wrong because the way God works is this way. If you do something wrong, you pay for it and wrong things happen. You reap 
what you sow. And if you're a seamstress, it's what? You rip what you sow, right? Just to lighten up a little bit because it's getting a little heavy here. You're all looking at me, really. He's telling him, dude, you've sinned, man. You've sinned. You've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. And if you just repent, everything will get better. Doesn't stop there, though. Job defends himself a little bit. Then his other friend, Bildad the Shuhite, comes along, who, by the way, is the shortest man in the Bible, and he says this, How long will you go on like this, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children obviously sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Can you imagine that? You're in a car accident, and you're the only one who survives, and the church comes together and says, Dude, man, don't you get it? God punishes evil people, and your kids must have been doing something wrong, and they deserved it. But he goes on. That's crazy stuff, but that's what he says. But if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, if you are pure and live with complete integrity, he will rise up and restore your happy home. In other words, Job, come on, man. We are your friends. We love you. We're going to tell you what it is. You have sinned. Your kids have sinned. It's obvious. But now, if you just repent and go back to God, God will restore everything and I'll be happy. Third friend, as Job defends himself and says, listen, I didn't do anything wrong. Zophar in chapter 11 says this, shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent by just talking a lot? In other words, Job's doing a lot of talking, and what he's saying is, Job, you've been talking about how innocent you are. Come on, I can't take this anymore. This torrent of words is driving me crazy. Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. What did he just say? He just said, listen, you are suffering because you did wrong, brother. You deserve it more. You should be getting more, but God in his mercy isn't giving you all that. Feel encouraged yet, Job? If you would just stop babbling about how innocent you are when we all know you aren't. This could all be taken care of when God gives his mercy and grace to you. Well, that's just round one. There's round two. I'm not going to go through it all, but it gets worse. And then there's round three. Here's what Eliphaz says. Chapter 22, this is the last one we're going to look at. He says this. After all this arguing, he says, Job, you think you're innocent? Dude, not at all. It is because of your wickedness. Okay, this is the guy who in the beginning said, Job, you're very encouraging. You're helping people follow God. Now he's turning around. He says, it's because of your wickedness. Your guilt has no limit. For example, you must have lent money to your friend and then kept the clothing he gave you as a pledge. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. After all, you think the land belongs to the powerful and that those who are privileged have a right to it. You must have sent widows away without helping them and crushed the strength of orphans. That is why you are surrounded by sudden traps and fears. Do you get that? Come on, man. This is why we don't share. This is why we don't tell people about our sin addictions and our struggles and pain because we have a fear that when we come before them, we're going to have three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who are going to tell us, you 
have done wrong. And so we all say, hands off. I'm not sharing. I would rather suffer and struggle in silence. The things that have happened to me, the things that I have done, I would rather say no thank you to your help because my expectation is even at church I will be judged. That in some way, shape, or form, even when I have done something wrong, instead of people coming alongside of me, strengthening, encouraging, and comforting me, I will be judged. And I won't have that support that I need. So for me, it's so much easier to just be silent and to suffer in silence. Now, I wish I could stand up here and say, I'm a wonderful counselor. Please come to me. I will walk with you. But I know in the past I've done some things, very trivial things that have not been anything like the church is supposed to be. It's been very Job-like. I've shared before with you the story when my wife, when she had to drink that juice when you're pregnant, and uh, when I told her, come on, man, hold it in. You know, she just had like, what, it was a 22-ounce bottle of that liquid. And I said, you have to go to the ba- You can't go to the bathroom before you see the doctor. They have to know, you know what I mean? They have to know from that juice or whatever happens that they do the test. You have to hold it in. Come on, man, hold it in. Right? That's very, uh, very good, right? That's the trivial. I remember one time when I first became a Christian, I was talking to this uh, girl that I had dated. And uh, years had separated our dating relationship, but she'd called back because she'd heard I was a Christian. And we're talking about things. And uh, she asked me this question. She goes, because uh, <clears throat> she'd gotten pregnant out of marriage, and uh, she'd had a baby, and the baby was in ICU for like six months. And her question to me was, why did God do this? And, and this is really cool. I, I did an Eliphaz. I said, yeah, but you killed his son, Jesus. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's an Eliphaz, man. This, okay, she had a child out of wedlock. She got what she deserved. Why are you looking at me and judging me? No, I'm kidding. I should be judged. That should be, that was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to say. It's what Eliphaz said. It's what I said. Recent experience, Willow Creek Care Center, please, on the third Saturday, come and join us. It's really good. Praying for this lady, she, I said, ma'am, is there anything that I can pray for? She says, my husband is struggling with some immigration stuff. Okay? Without even thinking, I said, oh, is he being deported? Yeah, right? Exactly. I said, as soon as I said that, I said to myself, oh, my God, literally in prayer, what did you just say? What did you just say? You know what? I spent the whole day wishing for a Harry Potter memory charm (laughs) that she would actually forget what I said. I don't know if she heard me, to be honest with you. I hope she didn't. I still hope she didn't. I hope she didn't even know what I meant or said. But this is why people don't share. I made a judgment, not because I was rude, not because I thought, oh, yeah, if anyone has immigration problems, it's definitely a deportation. What I thought in my head was, oh, my goodness, if he's in a deportation center, what a horrible place to be because people get treated unfairly and unjustly there. That was my thinking, but that's not what I said. And so people come to church looking for someone to help them, someone to walk with them through their suffering, someone to help them through the struggle of sin, and what do they get? They get judgment. 
And so the church suffers in silence because I've got to imagine, I mean, uh, I, I've experienced and seen stories of people at church here, other churches, and there's a lot of pain. And I have to imagine that there's a lot of pain sitting even in this room right now. And we all suffer or struggle in silence because why? Because of the many reasons listed above, but a lot of times, and I've heard this frequently from people in the recent past who said, I don't want to share because I don't want to be judged. I'm already struggling enough. Why would I want to struggle with people who are now going to judge me? Forget it. I would rather suffer in silence. Now I'm going to invite you to come back next week because I want to address how we as a church can actually change that. Because I think that's what Stephen Ministry does. And I really, you know, when, when, when I've heard someone said to me recently, you say harvest is a family, but I don't feel like it's a family to me. That hurts. That hurts. Because I'm a part of that, aren't I? It's my family. It's my family. And when someone tells me that my family isn't a family to them when they're in my family, that hurts. And we should all hurt at that. So that whoever you're sitting next to, even now, even in the midst of their struggles, they should be able to, and I'm not encouraging this, but they should be able to say, I am suffering, I am hurting, can you help me? I'm not saying everyone's going to come up here and give a testimony about their struggles. I'm saying there has to be somebody in this family who will walk alongside of you, who will walk with you through this, who will walk through your hurt and your pain. Because it's there. Men or women, doesn't matter. You might be struggling with anger issues. You might be struggling with pornography. You might be on the verge of an affair. I've even heard of people visiting prostitutes over the years. All of those things in the midst of the There's a lot of garbage going on. We have to have the opportunity and the freedom to approach our brothers and sisters, to sit with them, to surround them, and then not be judged. Let me finish with this. For those of you that are in this spot where you are suffering in silence, my first encouragement to you is this. Expect to be judged. Now, I'm not trying to be negative, and I know that sounds kind of contradictory, but expect to be judged. Okay, It's going to happen. One of my new jokes now is that I tell people when they say something that's really off, I say, listen, we're not going to judge you out loud. Which is fine. You know, as long, as long as you carry through and walk with them. But no, come on, man. Everyone gets judged. We all do. Expect it. It is a reality. If you're going to come to church and believe that everyone is going to embrace you with open arms, forget it. Not because people are bad, but because people are growing. Okay? They're growing. Some people are new to this. Some people are learning how to care. Some people have been in church for 20 years and they still don't know how to care. Don't be elbowing your spouse at this moment, okay? <laughs> right? They still don't, but they're learning. So expect to be judged, but expect, number two, this. Expect that there are people who will walk with you. Expect that. And Pastor Dave said something really good. So he's got my introduction and he's got the conclusion and I did the middle part. But he said something really profound the other day. He said, you know what, man? Because we were talking about this in light of the sermon. And he says, what we as pastors have to tell people is this. You may come to church, and in the midst of your sin and your suffering, you're going to be judged. But this is what we as pastors are going to tell you. You'll get judged, but we're not going to judge you. 
we're going to walk with you. And when he said that, I thought to myself, you know what, that really is a powerful message because what he is saying is, in the midst of your difficulties, we will be there. We can't be there for everyone, but we will be there. You will know that you have someone that you can come to who cares for you. Because we're family. We're not perfect. We're not the best. I may say stupid things. You've seen my history of saying stupid things, right? But we will be here for you. That doesn't mean that we're just going to all be lovey-lovey because we're going to love you to death. We are going to come to a point where we say, hey, you know what? Here's something that you need to work on if it needs to be said. If it doesn't need to be said, that's fine. But if it needs to be said, here's something. Because we are a family. I don't agree with everyone in my biological family in terms of my brothers and sisters. There's some very divergent opinions, very divergent lifestyles. But I can promise you that no matter what happens in my family, as a family, we are family and we walk together because we're family. If people who don't know and love Christ can do that, why can't the church? So I want to finish with this. To everyone here today who is suffering in silence. Begin to seek God for that time in the very near future when you stop suffering in silence. And you say, that's it. This is not getting me anywhere. We were talking about in in process group when Dr. Phil says, how is that working for you? Right? It's not working for me. But I'd rather suffer in silence because I don't want what's worse. No. We want to break that culture. We want to break that thinking. And we want to say that God's family wants to be God's family and enter with you into that struggle and enter with you into that suffering and enter with you into that pain so that we might walk with you through all of that. Because it's not working. And it's affecting your life. It's affecting your family. It's affecting the people around you. It's not good. And all I can say is think slughorn. Because one decision to be open could have changed a fictional history. Imagine how much one decision to be open about you and where you're at can change not only your history, but your family's history and your children's history. When I I think of youth group, even when I think of my kids, because sometimes people say my kids are like me, what you're seeing here is the future. The future here is shaped by you and how you will respond to things. Can we teach them what it means to be family? Can we teach them what it really means to be family? That in the midst of all of the stuff that you're going through and one day you'll say, oh man, I really look. Can we say we will be there? Because that's what they've seen? Or will they hide and say, I can't say nothing. And I'm not going to say anything because I've never seen anything good from it. So what do we want their future to be like? When I sit in premarital counseling, I'm always telling the couple, you got to learn how to deal with stuff. Because if you don't, your kids are going to pick up on it. And it's not just going to be the two of you. It's going to be your children too. They can see conflict. There's nothing wrong with children seeing conflict. It's how we get through the conflict that matters. They can see pain. They can see suffering. They can see sin. They can see all that. What matters is how will we walk through it together? That's what they need to see.
That's what you in the midst of your suffering needs to see. And my encouragement would be this. If you're in that place and you feel you have no one to turn to, I can stand here today and say, I promise. I can think of more than three people. But the three of us as pastors, as we talked about this, promise that we will walk with you through this. We will be here for you. It will not be easy. And sometimes difficult things need to be said, but we will be here. We will not be Job's friends. We will not spend our time judging you because judging you does no good. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.